Good evening. We are so glad you're here tonight. We're thankful for another opportunity to be together. It's been a beautiful day. We're grateful for this time of year. Everything's coming to life. And so hopefully and prayerfully, we will be blessed with a great spring and then followed by summer. I do want to say very quickly tonight, we want to bid Godspeed to the Blackwell family and the Lawson families. We're going to miss them greatly. Uh, they've been with us for a short period of time. They've been a blessing to us, and they will leave a void. And we wish them well as they move to Cookville, Tennessee, to begin working with the Willow Avenue congregation. Uh, Don will be preaching there regularly, and I have no doubt that church will be blessed uh, to have them, and I know that uh, great things are going to occur. Don will continue working with GBN, and we're grateful for that and for his influence. And so we want them to know that we will miss them. And uh, when they're back in the area, we certainly hope to see them again. And uh, let me tell you what, when the fall comes and the leaves begin to turn and the air gets crisp, uh, you'll love East Tennessee, beautiful place to live. Tonight we're looking at John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is one of the pinnacle chapters in John's, in John's narrative of the life of Christ. And so tonight we're going to look at a man by the name of Nicodemus who had the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a lot of information packed in chapter 3. And so we're going to just hit some of the highlights tonight in our study together. I want to pick up tonight in John chapter 3 beginning in verse 1, and I want us to begin our study by talking first and foremost about the investigation. There was an investigation. Nicodemus is identified as the one who sought a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on what we know from, God, from uh, John's Gospel, I think about the character of this man named Nicodemus. The Bible tells us that he was a man of great influence. Listen to what is recorded. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. No doubt he had tremendous influence in his life. And I think about the fact that as a ruler among the Jewish people, as a Pharisee, he welded great power, didn't he? And the text tells us not only was he a man of great influence, but he was also an instructor among the Jewish people. Because down in verse 10, Jesus identifies him as the teacher of Israel. In rabbinic literature, the idea of being a teacher of Israel would denote a prince or a great man. I think about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a man who was well-versed in the law of God. Saul of Tarsus had the opportunity to sit at his feet and learn. So Nicodemus was an esteemed man among the Jewish people. He was, as I said a moment ago, a man of influence among the Jews. He was a great instructor among the Jewish people. But then I want to call attention to his conviction. Now the Bible says that this man came to Jesus by night. Some have speculated as to why Nicodemus would have 
chosen to come at this hour of the day. It might have been the case that he did so under the cloak of secrecy, but it might also be the case that he did so because he had other things going on during the day. And this would have been a logical time for him to come and to sit down and to talk to Jesus and to investigate Him more fully. So as you think about the conviction of Nicodemus, listen to what the text says. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do the miracles which you do unless God be with him. So first we have him reaching out to Jesus. He was interested, wasn't he? He was, as we would say, a seeker. He wanted to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's interesting that John, in this context, says that Nicodemus, in his conversation with Jesus on the front end, would say, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He used the plural, didn't he? Who do you think Nicodemus would have been talking about? Would it have not been the case that some of his fellow Pharisees, and Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, wasn't he? A Hebrew among the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin? Is it possible that Nicodemus had conversed with Saul of Tarsus about the identity of the Messiah or the one that we know as Jesus? Now the text doesn't tell us. But you could sure raise those questions. So he comes to Jesus. He reaches out to him. And there is a realization on his part. I do not, I'm not convinced, at least from my study, that at this point in time, Nicodemus recognized that Jesus was the divine Son of God. But he did recognize him to be someone who was from God. And how did he know that? Well, he says it. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs or the miracles which you're doing unless God be with him. The miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his claims to deity, didn't they? You remember, for example, over in chapter 5, in about verse 37, Jesus said, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. John would later write in chapter 20, many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So those miracles affirmed His deity. And if you look at the life of Nicodemus as borne out in the writing of John, there is a progression of faith, isn't there? You read about him over in chapter 7, then later in chapter 19 with regard to the burial. So Nicodemus is a seeker. He wants to know more about Jesus. But then note, if you would, secondly, the revelation. Jesus is now going to begin talking about some things that will raise a lot of questions, no doubt, in the mind of Nicodemus. So in chapter 3, listen now. In verse 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus obviously thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. 
Well, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 4. Nicodemus then raises this question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Well, the answer would be no. Jesus is enlightening this ruler among the Jewish people, this Pharisee, an esteemed teacher among the Israelite people. And so in verse 5, Jesus would say again, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to talk first and foremost about the necessity of the new birth. And I think we need to define some terms here. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, He was pointing to that spiritual institution that Daniel in the long ago had foretold of. You remember Daniel chapter 2? And Daniel, in his preview of those four world empires, talks about the days would come when the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. He's talking about the church. Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. He pinpoints the birth of the church as Jerusalem because he said the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. So when John the Baptist, and we talked about John last week, he was a man, as the Apostle John noted, sent from God. He came to bear witness of the light. And John said he was not the light, but rather his purpose was to point people in the direction of the true light, that being Jesus Christ. John began preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And Matthew said his message was repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom he's talking about was the same kingdom that Daniel had foretold of hundreds of years earlier. It was the same institution that Isaiah the prophet foretold of. So in chapter 4, verse 17, we are introduced to the public ministry of Jesus. And as he began, as he began his public ministry, he heralded the very same message as John, didn't he? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the Jews, what kind of kingdom were they looking for? They weren't thinking about a spiritual institution, but rather they were thinking about a physical institution. Matter of fact, you remember James and John, they wanted a place on the ground floor when the Lord Jesus came into His kingdom. They wanted to sit one on the right hand and the other on the left. And yet Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, He said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, it's a spiritual entity. And then also in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said that there, are, that there were some in the first century who would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. When did that occur? It came on Pentecost Day. You remember in Luke 24, Jesus instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And so in chapter 2 of Acts, they received that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And Luke said in verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so the kingdom of God was established on Pentecost Day, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, prior to the establishment of the church on Pentecost, 
before Jesus ascended back to heaven, you remember they asked the Lord, will you again at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What were they thinking about? A physical kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. So Jesus in this context is talking about the kingdom of God or the church. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church, those terms are used synonymously in the New Testament to refer to the same institution. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said to Peter that he would build the church, and he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. You remember in verse 19, he said to Peter that he would give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom in verse 19 is the same institution as the church in verse 18. Jesus was the one who built it, and there would be only one church. He said, I'll build my church, singular and possessive in nature. Now Jesus said, the means by which we enter the kingdom of God is the new birth. Listen again to what Jesus said. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, Jesus said, except a man be born of water. The reference here would be to immersion in water, a burial in water. Well, why is that the case? Well, first, it is a divine requirement. The Lord here is laying down terms of admission into His divine kingdom. Now, He told the apostles he told Peter in Matthew 16, 19, as well as the apostles in Matthew 18, 18, that they would be the recipients of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. When Pentecost Day came, they took those keys, signifying authority, unlocked the doors to the kingdom. And when asked, men and brethren, what shall we do, having been convicted of sin, Peter said, by the authority of Christ, Legislating the terms of admission, number one, you need to repent. And number two, you need to be baptized. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. And you remember verse 41 says, Some 3,000 souls yielded obedience to the gospel. Verse 47, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were being added to the kingdom of Almighty God. So Jesus is saying, unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he said a man must be born of water and of the Spirit. Well, what does he mean when he says we must be born of the Spirit? How would we know anything about the church or the provisions of salvation, the kingdom of God? etc. How would we know anything about that were it not for divine revelation? Who was the one then that revealed this to the apostles? The Holy Spirit did. Well, how do I know that? John 16, verse 13. Jesus said, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, that will He speak. And He'll show you things to come. These men were guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter said, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, listen to him, through the Spirit. What does Peter mean then? Peter is saying, basically, 
that you come to a knowledge of divine truth through the Spirit, that is, through the Holy Spirit. In the first century, God's message was in men. They were the earthen vessels. Today, however, God's Word resides where? In what we call the Bible, Scripture. So Jesus is saying, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now I said a minute ago, this is a divine requirement. Listen, if you would, to what Jesus says. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, listen to him, you must be born again. If someone were to use the word must, would you say that would be optional or an obligation? It's not an option. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. Now I said that herein lies the necessity of the new birth. There are two reasons why we must be born again. Number one, we have to be born again if we want to enjoy the forgiveness of sins. There is only one way to be born again based on what the Bible teaches. Listen to Jesus in Mark 16. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus there placing both belief and baptism before what? Before salvation. Now Jesus said in John chapter 3, Except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we're baptized to be saved, but also we're baptized to enjoy the forgiveness or remission of sins. Look again at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to those people present on Pentecost Day, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that is, by His authority, for what purpose? For the remission of sins. In other words, so that your sins can be forgiven. To obtain forgiveness. We're not baptized into Christ because we have been saved, but rather we're baptized into Christ to be saved. That's what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16. That's what Peter is saying in Acts 2, verse 38. And you remember Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22, 16, when he recounted his conversion to Christ. The Lord said he would be told what he must do. So when Ananias arrived on the scene, Ananias said, Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So what do we have? We have baptism for what? For salvation, Mark 16, 16. Baptism is for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. It is also for the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. But there's another reason. We're baptized into Christ to enter the kingdom of God. You can't be in the kingdom unless you're baptized into Christ. Does that mean then that when I, when I submit to what the Lord teaches, that I have to join the church, that I'm voted into the church? No, when we're baptized into Christ, simultaneously 
we obtain the forgiveness of sins and we are added to the church of the kingdom of God. Now do I know that to be a fact? In Acts 2 verse 41, you remember some 3,000 people yielded obedience to the gospel on Pentecost Day? In verse 47, the Bible says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul said, By one spirit were you all baptized, listen to him, into one body. What's the one body? It's the church. Well, how many bodies are there? There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all, over all, and through all. So we're baptized into Christ so that we can contact the blood of Christ and we're added to the body of Christ. Now, I know that there are a lot of folks in the world today, and I've said this on numerous occasions, but I want to repeat it because I think there are a lot of folks that just don't understand. There are people that stream our services. And maybe they are not familiar with the teaching of the kingdom of God. The idea that we can have a relationship with Jesus with no affiliation to the church or kingdom of God is not biblical. If you're going to be in Christ, and all spiritual blessings are in Christ, aren't they? Ephesians 1.3. And the only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. The reason you need to be in the church is because that is the institution or the house of the saved. There are no saved people outside the church you read about in the New Testament. Not a single one. Ephesians 5 verse 23. Paul said, speaking of Christ, He is the Savior of the body. Well, the body's a church. He put all things in subjection under His feet, made Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So when Jesus talks about the new birth, and, we, and we, we've spent some time talking about the necessity of the new birth, it is a divine requirement, and there, there are divine reasons. Why do we need to be subject to the new birth? Because... It puts us in Christ. It puts us in the church of Christ. And if we're not in Christ, we're not in the church of Christ. And if we're not in the church of Christ or in Christ, we're not among the saved. Look, I don't know how to make it any simpler. As we say sometimes, that's as, that's as simple as ABC. It really is. And sometimes people's minds are clouded by what denominational churches teach. But the Bible is very clear. So first, the necessity of the new birth, and then secondly, the nature of the new birth. What then, or when we talk about the subject of the new birth, what you need to understand is the new birth involves the inward man. For example, in Romans chapter 1, you remember the Apostle Paul said that he served God with his spirit. In chapter 1, verse 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talked about the outward man and the inward man. He said the inward man is being renewed day by day. The inward man is the subject of the new birth. There is a physical birth under consideration, but there is also a spiritual birth that Jesus is emphasizing here. So listen now to what Jesus has to say. 
Look again, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That would be, that would be a physical birth. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That would be the spiritual birth. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now look at verse 8. Jesus is now going to use the invisible element of creation to make the point that the inward man, the spirit, that is your human spirit, is the subject of the new birth. When you're baptized into Christ and you rise to walk in newness of life, when you come up out of the watery grave of baptism, has your physical appearance changed? Anything changed physically? What then changed? It was the inward man, wasn't it? The blood applied to your life so that you might enjoy the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Paul said to the church at Corinth, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's saying what's made new is the inward man. Those old sins have been washed away, haven't they? And then we rise to walk in newness of life. What has changed? The inward man has. Physical man doesn't change. If you're, if you're a Caucasian, when you're baptized for the remission of sins, when you come up out of the water, you're going to be a Caucasian. If you're a male, you'll come up a male. If you're a female, you'll come up a female. The physical person doesn't change. It's the inward man. It's all Jesus is saying here. So we think about the necessity of the new birth and then the nature of the new birth. Now I want you to think in the third place, the declaration of Jesus. Well, I don't know it's quarter to seven. It's three minutes after six here. I guess I better scat. My watch has to be wrong. There's no way it could be 645. All right, very quickly. Jesus is going to use an illustration with regard to our salvation. He's going to use an illustration from the past and make the correlation. Now, we've talked in our class on the book of Hebrews as types and shadows. We talked about types and shadows, types and antitypes. So drop down very quickly and look at verse 14. Here's the illustration. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This takes us back to Numbers chapter 21. You remember the account? Turn very quickly to Numbers 21. I want you to see something in connection with this. We have the sin of Israel and the salvation of Israel. In Numbers chapter 21, the Bible tells us, look very quickly, in verse 4, the Bible says the children of Israel became discouraged. In verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they asked, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. 
Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray to the Lord that it may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The serpents were biting people and they were dying. They cry out to God for relief, don't they? God, in His grace, provides a means for them to be saved or spared so that they might enjoy life, if you please, if they followed His divine instructions. So here it is, verse 8. God said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. It shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So you've got God's grace. God intervening on behalf of the children of Israel. They're dying because these fiery serpents are biting them. God said to Moses, I want you to build a serpent of brass. Divine instructions. And if anyone is bitten... He is to look at that serpent of brass and live. So what do you have? You've got God's grace. You've got divine law. You've got faith. And you've got obedience, don't you? All right there in one neat little package. So, look again at John chapter 3. And by the way, before we move on, what if one of the Israelite people had been bitten by a serpent? And let's just say that having been bitten by the serpent, they were taken to their tent. And they said, you know what? I know that Moses has this serpent of brass. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to sit in my tent and pray the serpent's prayer. Would that have saved them? No, the Bible says they had to look at that serpent of brass and then they would live. There is a correlation in the serpent's prayer and the sinner's prayer. Neither are biblical. Neither one. So with that in mind, listen now to Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That was a type of salvation, wasn't it? So you have the correlation going all the way back to Numbers chapter 21. And Jesus is saying that when He's lifted up, He'll be the Savior of the world, won't He? Didn't Jesus say, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto Myself? Now, very quickly. Jesus said that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. How many times have we heard people take John 3, 16, the golden text of the Bible, and say, right there it is. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And they'll wave off New Testament baptism. And they'll say, there's nothing in John 3, 16 that says one word about baptism. It doesn't say anything about repentance either, does it? But it's there, isn't it? If you look at the context... Jesus is talking about how you obtain forgiveness of sins and enter the kingdom of God, His spiritual body. How do you do that? Through the new birth. Now you've got the scope of God's love and the sacrifice of His love reflected in the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. So 
Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, when people complied with that divine law through an obedient faith, did they live or die? They lived. So what about us today? Do we have to have an obedient faith to be saved? Drop down, look at John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. The American Standard Version, 1901, I think has the correct rendering of this verse. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, you know, you don't hear a lot about the wrath of God in our culture today. But when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he talked about how they had turned from idols to the living God and they had averted the wrath of Almighty God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about those who obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And he said their fate is indignation and wrath. So Jesus is saying, or rather John is saying here, an obedient faith blesses, doesn't it? Whenever you read about faith in the New Testament or faith in the Old Testament, the faith that God blesses is always an operative faith. In other words, it's an active faith, not a dead faith. It's not faith without works, but rather it is taking the law of God, complying with that law, and in so doing, enjoying the benefits and the blessings that God set forth. Now, our time's gone, sooner than I expected. But I'm thankful that you're here tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there's so much information in John chapter 3. We just didn't have time to cover it all. But if you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're not a part of the kingdom, could I encourage you to do that? What, what would keep you back from doing what the Lord said? Do you want to go to heaven? I know you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want to go to heaven. If you haven't complied with the conditions set forth in Scripture, then number one, you're not a Christian. And number two, you won't go to heaven. And yet the Bible says God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible also says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God, God has invested heavily in us. John 3, 16 bears that out, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know you want everlasting life. We all do. We're going to live somewhere, someday. We want to be in heaven. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to His cause, could we encourage you to come to Christ? To believe, or rather come to Christ. If you haven't, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, do that today. If you have obeyed the gospel but gone back into the world, why not be restored? Let the elders of the church pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. You know, James said, confess your sins one to another. Pray one for another. Let's pray together. We can pray with you, pray for you. You can leave here back in fellowship with God as we stand and sing.